This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Clara Cook and today we have a very special guest with us. We have Carlos Miranda from um, treknews.net, a friend of ours from the Destination Star Trek convention. Uh, Recently, some of you will have heard Carlos on the episode that we did with our interviews with the various Divis Nine actors and Ira Stephen Bear and so on. Uh, You managed to get the story out of Ira about his ring, which was was a good spot. That was a good spot. I mean, the guy was sitting right next to us and he had this giant Deep Space Nine ring. So you kind of have to ask about it, right? See, I was fixated on the beard. It didn't occur to me to look at his hand. (laughs) That's that's very true. The bright blue beard. Is, yeah, uh, yeah. is very distracting. Uh, but it's great to have you with us, Carlos. And we're here, we're recording live at the London School of Economics uh, in London. And this is a very special episode for us. This is uh, almost a kind of anniversary episode, in a sense. It's our episode 47. And as a result, we are looking <laughs> at in-jokes and Easter eggs in Star Trek. Because as many of you will already know, the number 47 is a very significant number in the Star Trek universe. Clara, do you want to... Give us a little bit of background about the number 47 for anyone who's not familiar with it. I actually know nothing about right, the number 47. I, I, I don't know. So I will admit that um, I think that Star Trek fans often fall into two camps. There are the people mm-hmm. that do spot the Easter eggs. And then there are the people that don't always spot the Easter eggs until they're pointed out to them. And unfortunately, I am in the camp of someone that doesn't ever see them until... I run the Babel conference and I see that people are talking about something. I think I did notice that 47 did appear quite a lot, but I thought it was because 47 was kind of a nice number. Well, it does. It is part of that, I think, because it does yeah. feel like a kind yeah. of... Um, I, th- I think part of it is it feels like a random number somehow. Like yeah. it, it's one of these numbers yeah. that people pluck out of the air. But and it looks good written down as well. I right. Think, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was recently watching an episode of Doctor Who from a couple of years ago, and there was this whole thing about r- supposedly random numbers there where people kept, you know, basically any of they were they were in some weird simulation or something. And the proof that the simulation wasn't real mm. was that anyone who was asked to come up with a random number or a sequence of random numbers, they all came up with the same numbers. Right. Uh, and, you know, because of this idea that a computer can't generate kind of truly random numbers and the interesting thing about the 47 that the, the story or I'll, I'll do the background <laughs> Clara, since I've got it written down in front of me um, it came via Joe Minoski was the one who brought the 47s into Star Trek um, and this was because he'd studied at Pomona College in California where in 1963 one of the mathematics professors had given a lecture where he claimed uh, 
Look, I don't. I mean, you know, you talk about you're the academic. Your head, I, I don't, <laughs> maths does not, does not register for me. But uh, apparently, he made this argument that all numbers are in some sense equal, and the example that he gave was that all numbers were equal to forty seven. And as a result, in this particular college in the United States, they're kind of obsessed with the number forty seven, and it's become, I think, among the students there. Not not just this kind of theoretical proof that in some arbitrary sense all numbers are 47, but they have almost kind of come to this idea of, you know, there's a glitch in the matrix, there's something mm-hmm. kind of sinister or mysterious going on because they see 47s everywhere. Uh, and, you know, if you look at their college magazine and so on, they, they still have this kind of 47 hunt. I mean, it is, you know, we're talking about Easter eggs. It is almost like yeah. an Easter egg hunt, hunt the 47s. And obviously in Star Trek, once Joe Minoski came on board, he sort of started bringing this idea of like seeding these 47s throughout the Star Trek universe. And the other writers all kind of came on board and it became a kind of running joke. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about that is that we were just talking about this while, um, before we started recording, that I think that there's a different, there's, there is a difference between in-jokes mm. and Easter eggs, mm-hmm. right? And but, it, but at the same time, I feel like you could do so many in-jokes that then they become... Easter eggs, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, but I think if you've done them enough times, them them enough times them. Yeah. exactly, and people exactly. expect them, um, then people start looking out for them. And then I think it, it kind of morphs from much more of an in-joke mm-hmm. to an Easter egg, right? Um, but I think Star Trek, what's interesting is that Clara was saying this, that I think that like for a lot of the times, I think up until a certain point, up until I think maybe the Kelvin, the Kelvin universe and Discovery, that most of Star Trek was very self-referential. So it was much more about, hey, did you spot the fact that Bashir is, is having the same plumak soup that Spock had in this episode? Right, yeah, so it was yeah. a lot more about kind of in-jokes within and, and being and re- referring to things that came, that, that had happened in the past of other series of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until kind of later on, really, that I think Easter eggs really started. You know, all of a sudden you have the Millennium Falcon in First Contact or R2-D2 right. in Star Trek 09, like really kind of finding these Easter eggs. And sort of breaking, not quite the fourth wall, but sort of breaking the reality in the sense mm-hmm. where some of those earlier examples, are they Easter eggs? Are they, are they just continuity? They're mm-hmm. kind of soft continuity in a way. Mm-hmm. They're kind of little hints. And especially, say, with a show like Deep Space Nine, I think a lot of people have pointed out Deep Space Nine is very heavily referencing the original series a yeah. lot of the time um, because that's the kind of series that really informed that show as much as it came out of the next generation I think for a lot of the writers the original mm-hmm. series was their Star Trek and that was the series having gone through this period with next gen where you know there was almost a kind of edict not you know don't mention don't mention the original series yeah. you know essentially there was this big row about you know uh, in the episode Sarek could they even use the word Spock yeah. because that was seen as so yeah. it was just this um this weight, essentially, that Star Trek had uh, hanging around its neck. And the, and the idea was that, you, you know, we really don't want to reference all this stuff. But as you go into later Star Trek, you get more and more. And certainly, and you get that as well, you know, say in Voyager, you get a couple of references to Captain Kirk, mm-hmm. original Enterprise, you know, this kind of idea of, of referencing Star Trek's own history. Yeah. And it's true, I don't know whether you count that as an Easter egg exactly, but it, it sort of is... It is in that sort of similar vein of kind of something that's maybe there for the fans, something yeah. that's maybe there for the writers as well. Yeah. But just thinking about these 47s, I mean, I don't know whether initially, you, you know, so Joe Minoski sort of brought this, and, and I think he's done it in his other work outside Star Trek as well, because, you know, he's part of this kind of weird club of 47 <laughs> obsessives. Yeah. But obviously that, I think, was something that probably initially was seen as a joke within the writing room or, you know, that a very small number of people would get. And then... Uh, gradually as it became more and more exposed and it became more and more of them, obviously it became something that fans became familiar with. I've just got a couple of examples here, just for anyone who, who 
that doesn't believe this or, or you know, wants to know. Uh, one of my favourite ones was in Darmok. There are 47 meanings to the word Darmok. That's yeah. because that's one of my favourite Joe Minoskia episodes. So I love that one. In Iborg, uh, you might notice the... the um, uh, whatever it is, the sort of maybe we come up against my maths again. That, yeah. that kind of impossible program, that right. impossible image or whatever it is that yeah. they're trying is labelled four seven four seven. So that's yeah. kind of an obvious one. And often you see four seven on yeah. in first contact the the screen that the admiral is, yeah. is talking to Picard on has a forty seven on it and so on. Um, one of the nicer ones I thought sometimes they get a bit more clever in Descent. The hand of poker that Stephen Hawking wins with is four uh-huh. sevens. Yeah. So that is and that's obviously <clears throat> a joke. Like that's not just okay. We need a number here. That's someone thinking right. We're going to be a bit clever here. See yeah. if I, you know, see if our colleagues notice it. See if the viewers notice it, etc. And my one of my other favourite ones, apparently, according to Voyager, I, I know this because I, I spend the weekend looking online, and people have gone on the forty-seven Easter egg hunt. They yeah. have collected hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these examples, uh, and a lot of them are quite mundane. They are quite boring. They're just like a number on a wall or a number on a pad. <laughs> or something. But one that I quite liked from Voyager was that apparently the Prime Directive has forty-seven subdirectives. So you know, there's a kind of something so fundamental to Star Trek something this sort of key uh, document in a sense and again there's the 47 kind of right at the heart of it so one of the things I thought was quite different from Easter eggs and this is an example I think 47 really is an Easter egg and mm. probably like you say it started out as sort of like a, an in-joke for the writers and you have to actually question what is an in-joke that the writers have with each other or an in-joke <laughs> that the production team have with each other and what is actually something that is aimed at the fans mm. um, but 47 obviously is an Easter egg, but I thought was the Easter eggs is people hunt for them. Whereas the, the, the sort of references you're talking about, yeah. I felt a little bit more like to sort of flesh out the Star Trek universe, make it seem more realistic and sort of give the background story color, you know, so Bashir eating the same type of soup that Spock likes is to sort of make it seem like the cuisine of Star Trek is, you know, universal across the, across the galaxy whatever like people are eating similar dishes or whatever it makes it feel more real it makes it feel more real it puts Space Nine in the same context as you know the original Mm. series Um, whereas Easter eggs I feel are slightly different I feel they are like and it it goes back to what Easter eggs originally were weren't they Mm. originally something that was a a part of a video game that you had to hunt for and then and people who were really into that video game would either have to do some sort of cheat or do some sort of action and they'd find their Easter egg and that was like your prize and so I think Looking for the 47s, people feel a real sense of satisfaction when they found a 47. And they must feel a real sense of massive satisfaction when they found a 47 that no one else has found. But Uh, I think, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like a treasure hunt. But when you look up the meaning, so in preparation for this, um, also doing some Googling, and and, and we were just talking about the fact that I never prepare for anything, but here I am with notes. I can show (laughs) two pages of notes. Lovely notebook. It's very true, very true. Filled with handwritten notes, yeah. It's very true. Um, And no peeking, man. You're (laughs) going to steal my my brilliant brilliant commentary here. It's all right. Uh, I I shared my outline with you. I don't normally do that. It's very true. It's like that episode of, I did an episode of Trek Ranks with Trek fan Rick, mm-hmm. and he like had all of my same picks. And so I always oh, really? joke that yeah. he was like spying on me and that he's like some <laughs> sort of like weird Tal Shiar yeah. like agent. Um, but anyway, the, but, what, but I think that what's interesting is that when I'm kind of looking up the actual definition of Easter egg really is, you know, when you do an Easter egg hunt, it is that it is a hunt. It was, it was meant originally with like the first Easter egg that I know that in, in your notes you talk about kind of ready player one and obviously mm-hmm. and things like that, but kind of hunting for something. And so I do think that there's a big difference between an in joke 
mm-hmm. which I think can morph into an Easter egg mm-hmm. and something that was placed specifically for someone to hopefully find and then get extra enjoyment out of it. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of like the, um, I think it was the original Deep Space Nine DVDs. They used to have like secret yeah. menu buttons, right? And then if you were finally, there's like section 31 file on yes, like, exactly. you know. Yeah. And they'd be like two minute Exactly, like two, kind of part of the right? advertised yeah. special Wait, features. Do you mean the ones that are in that those kind of cool boxes? That yeah, 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 I have yeah, those yeah. DVDs at home. To find these I had no idea. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. And funnily enough, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned that because that I was going to ask you both what was your first uh, encounter with the concept of an Easter egg? Because for me, it wasn't through video games, it was through DVD menus. So yeah, it was exactly that idea of discovering, and, and not just Star Trek, I mean, a lot of DVDs in yeah. the 90s, I guess, were, were doing that. Yeah. But you know, if you kind of move around in the menu, you'll yeah. find there are kind of secret bits of the menu that you're, you're not supposed you to just blow you're like, what? I'm going to go home. It's like, <laughs> I'll put in all my DVDs. All your old DVDs. But it is interesting, you know, talking about Ready Player One, I mean, that is a, a, a story, you know, both in the book and the film that is absolutely predicated on this idea of the egg hunt. And mm. even, you know, the, the characters, mm. and they talk about it as an egg yeah. hunt. I mean, they're literally, the prize at the end is in some physical form, yeah. an egg. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's been very much established like that. They, they call themselves gunters or egg yeah. hunters. Um, but it's interesting because that story, again, in, in, both, in both versions, in the, in the book and the film, it has this element that, the plot turns, this is a big spoiler for anyone. It's not really a big spoiler for anyone who, who hasn't seen or, or read Ready Player One, but it, <laughs> it is a plot spoiler. Uh, turns on exactly this game mm-hmm. from the 19, 1979 Atari game called mm-hmm. Adventure, which was apparently the origin of the concept of mm-hmm. the Easter egg in video games. Yeah. And what it was, was that the programmer who designed the game, who was a guy called Warren Robinette, uh, was annoyed that he'd not been acknowledged. Like there were no credits on games in those days. There was no, you know, he put all this work into the this game and he wasn't being his work wasn't being acknowledged basically so he hid his name in the game and the easter egg was that if you you know move the cursor over a particular space in the game uh you managed to find out what the name was of the guy who created it and obviously in, Re- in Ready Player One, uh, this is the kind of final of, of many tests and many kind of eggs that have to be sought, you know, metaphorical eggs, the secrets that have to be discovered on the kind of treasure hunt. Uh, the final one is to f- is just to play. It's actually an easy one for the main character because he knows all about it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the reader, like me, who's never heard of Warren Robinette or Adventure or any of it, at least has picked up on it because the novel has kind of seeded this information. Yeah. Uh, and actually, compared to a lot of the tasks, it's a very easy one because he knows exactly where to find it and how to get it. And that's what wins him the egg in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting because in some ways you might say that's not an Easter egg in the sense that we understand it because, it, I mean, it's a secret. I suppose an Easter egg is always a secret. There's not, it's not like the Deep Space Nine box says, oh, and there are Easter eggs mm. and, you know, yeah. this is where yeah, you're going to go yeah. and find them necessarily. You, you, maybe you do have to sort of search around for them, discover them kind of on your own <laughs> terms. But in that instance, it wasn't really so much that he was putting it in there as a game or as a kind of um, extra bit of entertainment. He like he had a legitimate reason yeah. for, you know, he felt slighted mm. by the company he was working for. And so he put it in there as a way of getting it past the his bosses who didn't want him to be acknowledged so they shipped out thousands of copies of this game people were playing all around the world or whatever and only then did they realise that he'd sort of snuck this kind of secret um, yeah. in there uh, under their noses in a sense so so weirdly the easter egg started off as this kind of not so much this kind of pleasurable game but as a way of kind of getting across secret information somehow yeah. without anyone realising yeah no I mean I think that one one that's really interesting and I think two Going back to your question, though, I mean, I remember vividly as a kid 
pre-DVDs, not that I'm like super old or anything, but like before <laughs> DVDs, that the first time that I really kind of caught an Easter egg or was really fascinated by it was that I was, so obviously I am, here I am talking about on, a, you know, uh, on a Star Trek podcast. So clearly I'm obsessed with Star Trek, but as a kid, I was also obsessed with Star Wars and I was particularly mm-hmm. obsessed with Indiana Jones. I was obsessed with Indiana Jones mm-hmm. and my obsession between first Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I remember once somebody telling me, oh, do you know that in, I don't know who it was, but I was really little that in the hieroglyphics behind where the, the Ark of the Covenant is, there's three of the hieroglyphics are Princess Leia, R2-D2 and C-3PO. Right. And I was like, oh my God. So I remember as a kid, like trying to find that scene. And I, yeah, free test. Like, but you couldn't really. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 you yeah, couldn't yeah. really. And obviously VHS is being a little bit darker and you yeah, couldn't yeah, really yeah. like, but I remember, so I think that was my first real kind of like, oh, right. There are these like, mm-hmm. there, there are these other, you know, there are these characters from another movie in this movie. Isn't that amazing? And then, th- then, you, then you realize, oh, actually, you know, Spielberg would put Star Wars references in a lot of his earlier work. Right. Like you had like the kid dressed up as Yoda in E.T. You had Club Obi-Wan, which is the club at the opening sequence in Temple of Doom. It's uh, never really said, it's never, it's never said if it's called Club Obi-Wan, but in the mm-hmm. background one scene, you see Club Obi-Wan. Right. Um, so like that was my first real kind of experience the fact that actually you know at the end of the day filmmakers are massive a lot of them especially that are working in in different genres love other things within that genre or like one over and those things you know we talk about jj abrams and all of those things influence them tremendously and they want to pay like homage to it they want to like be be like oh you know i love this and this 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 got me to where i am and i'd love to kind of sneak this in to kind of have a wink at the audience to know not not the whole audience but people like them yeah and it's almost that kind of it's almost like sort of da vinci code or something these kind mm-hmm. of secret messages mm-hmm. embedded in these films mm-hmm. that you you know and you may have watched uh you know indiana jones a yeah. hundred times without yeah. noticing it and yeah. that's part of the appeal i suppose is that with a lot of those kind of easter eggs they they do go under the radar mm. unless someone points them out to you. Yeah. It's interesting when we were preparing for this. I mean, this is not uh, really a mailbag episode. We're not going to be reading out loads of the mm. messages we got. But I did put the uh, word out on the Babel conference and also on Twitter to try and... Because um, I was kind of curious to see what were the kind of Easter eggs mm. that appealed to some of our listeners yeah. and that kind of, you know, that... that, that really worked or didn't work for people and one of the things that came in a lot was people talking about akuda grounds and the kind of little jokes very much in that kind of exactly in that way you know this is not on the level of the script it's not you know unlike the 47s which are obviously sort of baked into the script in most cases uh these are just purely visual things and this this is you know the art department whose job it is to produce all this content to produce all this artwork just kind of playing around now and then and putting these you know these little kind of jokey things in here and there um and actually we got a comment from mike akuda uh, I was quite pleased. He, he, he responded to my tweets yeah. asking what were your favourite Akuda grounds. I will read out, uh, my, I'll make an exception to, to it not being a mailbag episode to read out Mike Akuda's uh, tweet. He said, if you're referring to gags in the graphics, my goal was always to keep them subtle, just on the threshold of legibility or below. If the casual viewer noticed them on first viewing, that would be a disservice to the viewer and the episode. But of course, in HD, the threshold is different. And then, so I, so I asked him, I responded to him and said, you know, how do you, sort of feel about people going back and kind of finding all these things now if you sort of weren't really intending to find them he said i love it when people go back and frame by frame an episode or movie and discover something and i also asked him what was his favorite of all the kind of gags that they put in there because some of them are quite elaborate some Mm. of them are quite complicated they might be kind of visual things they might be uh you know for example if there's a crew manifest they might list 
uh, yeah. real production crew. Mm-hmm. Or several people on the mm-hmm. Mabel conference pointed out things. There's a Voyager episode where there's a list of dead crewmen and they're all the the senior staff of the West Wing, right. the TV show The West Wing. There was another one where they were all the actors who played Doctor Who. You know, so there yeah. are these kind of um, references to other mm-hmm. kind of TV properties and so on. But Michael Kudra actually said, he said, my favourite gag was the use of the initials of production crew members on graphic button icons. And that's interesting because I suppose those are not necessarily at the level of illegibility insofar as they probably would be in focus, but they're seemingly meaningless information until you realise that actually, you know, those those initials are standing not for, you know, fire phases or whatever we imagine that button is supposed to be doing, but for, you know, some member of the production team who's kind of... Um, getting their moment in the spotlight almost. You're almost a kind of cameo of yeah. sorts, uh, even just it being an initial. And of course, you, you've got the dedication plaques. You know, every uh, bridge of every yeah. Star Trek starship, uh, certainly from next gen onwards, I think. Um, I think that's right. I don't, I don't know. No, no definitely. But I, 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 I assume think, not in the original series. No, the original know. series didn't list any crew. Right. It just had like the, uh, it was, it's a very boring plaque. As right, yeah, to yeah, yeah, came after. yeah. And you can get them, of course, you know, Eagle Moss, they, yeah. they, they produce them as well as the starships. Uh, and they will have uh, a little quotation. They'll have a sort of a nice thing that is sort of in the in universe makes sense. And then they have a list of all the mm-hmm. production team who worked on that show. So, you know, Admiral Gene Roddenberry or yeah. Rick Berman or whoever <laughs> yeah. it is as being the people who were behind that ship. Now, obviously, that it, at the point at which it's legible, and I suppose it isn't typically legible on the screen, but they are producing them as kind of, you know, they, they are publicizing those things insofar yeah. as you can see them. I mean, even the Next Gen Technical Manual, I think, has the Enterprise D's one, which, yeah. ha- which lists all those production crew yeah. members. And that, so they're sort of a way of blurring the boundaries between the imaginary world of Star Trek and the kind of real production world of Star Trek by literally putting it there on the bridge. Yeah. And it's in you know, out of focus, but it yeah. is effectively in every shot that's yeah. filmed on that bridge. You know? But I think, I think it's also interesting. It's probably also a way, you know, we talked about the Atari and the adventure, and that was a way of getting recognition for, Hey, I worked really hard on this mm-hmm. and it, it, I would love to get recognition in a way that the general public that's consuming this piece of media can acknowledge it in some way. Mm-hmm. And I got to imagine that the Kudograms were such, were also a way of saying, Hey, we, we, you know, we've all worked really, really hard on this and let's have a little fun and let's make sure that our names are kind of, and the recognition of the work is visibly on the screen, even if it's kind of and in the background. not just in the credits. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's within the universe. It's within the, the universe, thing, exactly. And I think it's magically, even though it makes no sense that there's yeah. Admiral Gene Roddenberry at Starfleet Command or whatever, right. it's kind of magically brought into yeah, the Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, and, and before, you know, it's very rare, like, you know, before the technical manuals and before the internet and before DVDs, most of that stuff, as he, as he says in his tweet, is just kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. I actually, as a kid that was obsessed with Star Trek, I didn't really realize it until Voyager came out. And, and well, I knew that they were like hidden jokes, but you could never really see what they were. Mm-hmm. And like the E! Entertainment channel in the U.S. did a like a one hour behind the scene uh, of Star Trek Voyager in the pilot. And they had, I think it was Garrett Lang walking around and reading some of the acutograms and uh, saying like, this one says in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah. And this one said <laughs> this. And, and it was just saying like little in jokes that the, that the art department puts in. And that was really the first time that I had like, that, that I had seen or heard exactly what was on an, 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 an right. equilibrium. 
And it presents a kind of potential issue when you go back and remaster these shows yeah. because obviously something that was not intended to be legible to the viewer yeah. originally, there's a danger that suddenly these things become yeah. not just visible, but actually distracting. Actually, yeah. you, you know, if you if you go back and remaster those footage. And I'm sure there were examples with the next gen Blu-rays of where they actually changed. I'm not sure if that's why, but there were examples where they changed text that was on the screen because they realized it wasn't now right. it was going to be legible in a way that it wasn't before and it wasn't yeah. kind of up to scratch yeah. one way or another. So there, there may have been examples of that kind of thing. Um, I think a lot of it isn't just about recognition. It's also about, um, there's a level of affection there as yeah, well. Totally. You know, I mean, I'm, and the, the show that I discovered Easter eggs on much more than Star Trek actually was the X-Files. Mm. Uh-huh. I mean, more than Scully will be walking through a grave graveyard and all the names on the gravestones will be members of the crew or oh, children yeah. of the actors or, yeah. and almost there'll be a scene where like Scully's acting and Gillian Anderson's sons will be like, she's yelling at like two little boys who are right. on a bus yeah, yeah. bothering her and they are sons, you yeah. know? I mean, there's basically Easter eggs galore in the X-Files and a lot of stuff to do with numbers. Yeah. 10, 13 is a big thing because right. that's, Fox Mulder's birthday, it's Chris yeah. Carter's birthday, yeah. obviously the whole network's called 1013, yeah. um, the production network or whatever. So it's filled with Easter eggs, but I think originally, and I'm pretty sure about this, that when the X-Files was originally being made, there were a few things that they were trying to get the fans to pick up on, but a big percentage of it was the production team just having fun with each other. Mm. You know, the writers having mm. fun. I mean, one of the writers was actually dressed up as a monster in one episode, you know, right. and you don't yeah. actually know it's him because he's the fluke man. The fluke yeah. man, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think sometimes, especially on a show where it's long running, it's serialized, um, it's over many, many seasons, many, many episodes. And like we learned, you know, from Star Trek Destination that the actors were working these really long hours, you know, and always in each other's company. It does become, I think, obviously there can be problems, you know, but it does become a very family atmosphere. Mm. And so I think there probably is a lot of in-jokes and there's probably a lot of um, sort of teasing each other and kind of sort of Mm. affectionately making fun of each other. And so I sometimes think some of these references to crew and cast in different scenes, whether it's in the art or whether it's Mm. actually in the script or whether it's an actor doing something, like I think of Riker playing his trombone, that's because... Mm. I mean, is that really an Easter egg? I don't know. But they gave the they gave they gave these characters yeah. um, aspects that actually were more about the actors than the actual yeah. characters. And I think sometimes it is just because it's like an almost like an affectionate gesture. I don't always think it's about the audience. I don't think it's always about pleasing the audience. But yeah. because over the years the fan base grows and fans yeah. become obsessive, like I don't know, there's three of us actually podcasting about Star Trek, so I shouldn't be worried about that. <laughs> but fans start obsessively watching things mm-hmm. and paying attention to very little details then I think they start seeing these as Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Whereas originally, I don't know if all of that was always meant for the fans. No, maybe they were intended for the for the production team. Or even just, I mean, in some cases, they're kind of, I mean, I was thinking like, it's probably less of these things in the original series, but of course the original series as well had the famous GNDM, yeah, yeah. you know, on the on the uh, pipes or whatever. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, you could invent something that that stood for, but in fact, as far as they were concerned, it stands for goes nowhere, does nothing. Yeah. You know, which is kind of an in-joke within the design department yeah. or whatever. Of course, we should have mentioned when we're talking about, you know, giving recognition to people, the Jeffreys tubes, yeah. most probably the most prominent yeah. example of something in Star Trek that's yeah. named after... Uh, someone from the production uh, side yeah. of things and is there as a very explicit homage to that, yeah. you, you know, to that person to, to have that name. And that name does, of course, occur yeah. in dialogue again and again, uh, you know, as a result. 
Um, they would name shuttles after people like, like the Berman yeah, and like, exactly. like, like they, they, so, so yeah, definitely. But, but I also think that there's, but I, I don't, I agree with you, but I also think that there's been in a post kind of, I think lost world, you know, you had, you had the X-Files, but I think lost came in and every episode of lost as an extension of like kind of JJ's personality and the things that he likes to do and things like that is like full of like, you could just watch that and point it out. Like, you know, in jokes, it's full of Easter eggs. It's full of like foreshadowing. It's full of, but that leads to me to the question, which is like, does it become too much? Because mm-hmm. I mean, there has yeah. been criticism of like discovery and Star Trek mm-hmm. beyond that. There are too many Easter eggs and it gets in the way of like an actual realistic plot or I'm not yeah. saying that about lost. Yeah. Although, for the record, yeah. what happened with Lost? Anyway, yeah. but like, yeah. you know, I, I stopped watching it. I, I, it, it, got it, lost. it. It got lost. It, lost. it, it lost. definitely got lost. But you know, like, as in, does that eventually interrupt the viewer's yeah. experience of the story? And like, does after what and, has it become too much? Well, yeah. and I would argue, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of J.J. Abrams. I, yeah. and, and part of that is because I think that he, as a director, is so obsessed with referencing other things. Mm-hmm. And you, you, know, you could say someone like Quentin Tarantino is also so yeah. obsessed with referencing other, other things, but somehow... For me, in his films, it feels like there's enough of an individual thing yeah. to kind of... What My issue with J.J. Abrams is I feel like often there's not that much other than that mm-hmm. to it. Do you know what I mean? Other than kind of flair. There's a lot of kind of technical flair. There's a lot of kind of sort of fireworks, if mm-hmm. you want, cinematic fireworks. But I feel like often his films, to me, feel a little bit hollow. Uh, and I think in some ways there is a danger that you have too much of this kind of mm-hmm. thing. And actually with the 47 references, um, Ron Moore said that on Deep Space Nine... They reached a point where they were doing them so often they started to pull away from it because the writers started getting kind of sick of it and they were thinking, is this actually distracting? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they started deliberately taking 47s out of scripts yeah. uh, because they felt that maybe by that point as well, the audience had become aware of it. And once, once uh, you know, maybe it's okay if a small subsection of the audience is aware of something, mm-hmm. but once most of the audience or at least the fan audience is aware of it, it's kind of, it's not such a special thing anymore. Yeah. Somehow the Easter egg is not so unique uh i mean actually ready player one is kind of interesting in that respect because you know there you've got this game which is being played by a large percentage of the population of the Mm. world uh and yet for years and years and years people are not working out these clues they're not solving the problems they're not you know and then suddenly one person gets it and then everyone sees where they went and they kind of they they they, by solving a riddle in a sense they kind of given enough of a clue to everyone else that everyone sort of follows and it becomes less special somehow. Yeah. But that idea of like being the first person to mm. discover one of these things uh, is quite a kind of, um, yeah. you know, that's a kind of moment. And maybe even in your own life, you know, you were saying discovering those hieroglyphics yeah. in Indiana Jones, for you personally, that's a moment when that's your first yeah. initiation. And even with the 47s, you know, the first time that you notice it, someone might tell you, oh yeah, there's loads of, you know, 47 yeah. is mentioned obsessively in Star Trek. And you might think, well, I've been watching Star Trek for years. I've never noticed it. Mm. And then there you go. <laughs> I've <laughs> never noticed that. Yeah. Never and, noticed yeah, but then it's one of those things, you know, once you notice it, you mm. can't not notice it. Yeah. It's like your eyes now are going to see it. Wow, okay, this is, and I, personally, I, I, I mean, I don't know what you guys feel. I feel like sometimes the 47 references are a bit much. And, and sometimes I'll be watching Star Trek and oh, come on, guys. You know, really, mm. again, we get it. You know, we get the joke. Uh, and, and it can take me out of the yeah. moment, you know, if I'm you know, otherwise dramatically kind of ensconced in the reality of the story, something like that. It's like, was that the right time for a joke? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I suppose some Very of these other Easter eggs we might talk about, you know, Star Trek can veer from like, very serious straight down the line drama to very playful kind of silly mm-hmm. postmodern comedy. Um, as 
does the X, I mean, the X Files, you, you know, totally the same thing. Some episodes totally straight laced, totally yeah. kind of serious. Other episodes basically sending themselves up, uh, yeah. very kind of playful. For me, the kind of these kind of things, these kind of Easter eggs and so on, they, they work fine for me in the context of like a, a silly or a funny episode. Sometimes when they're happening right in the middle of something quite dramatic and serious and intense, I'm a bit more skeptical about it. I'm like, you know, maybe this wasn't the time to basically be subliminally cracking a joke while we're supposed to be wrapped up in this drama, you know? I mean, I think that I understand what you're saying. I don't disagree with you. I think anything to an extreme, particularly, you know, you were talking about JJ and you were talking about like Quentin Tarantino, I think anything to an extreme really can take you out of the moment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that's not for the general audience as well, right? Right, And I think that that's that's also, there's certainly a level of rewarding your fans Mm -hmm. That could, and only you know a very small percentage of the population that are watching one thing are going to get it, yeah. and that's a way. Here we are on the forty seventh podcast talking yeah. about Easter eggs and what's and, it, and and you know these guys and, and then the people that, that, that made these shows, you know they they put these things in there mm-hmm. to drive and well to one to create and two to nurture a sense of community of like mm. you guys are in the now and you're right i'm a total hypocrite because i was the one who said it's our 47th episode yeah, <laughs> yeah. episode yeah. and yeah. and easter eggs which is absolutely playing into that same that idea was, i'm glad you realized yeah you're right i hold my hands up it was <laughs> it was a cheesy joke on, along the same lines i suppose but one of the things i wanted to talk about because i think this is an interesting one and i'd be interested to know what you guys think of this is um, we talked a little bit earlier about the TNG technical manual, mm. which is an interesting book. And I don't know about you, you know, I had a copy of that when I was a teenage fan of the next generation. I loved that book, even though I didn't understand, yeah. you know, 90% of it. It's, it's a very interesting book because on the one hand, it's quite, uh, I was going to say straightforward. I mean, it's more sort of po-faced. It's, it's like ostensibly quite a serious technical document. It explains the science behind all these things right. in quite sort of serious, uh, Ways it's illustrated, you know, it's, it's presented like a uh, kind of a manual, you yeah. know, it's presented in a kind of serious in world way. At the same time, it also has silly jokes uh-huh. and ridiculous things. And one of the things that's in there is, is this idea of citation ops, which of course we never see on screen in the oh. next generation. We do get two references to it. We get a reference in yesterday's enterprise over the tannoy, which is barely audible. I mean, you talk about things being, you know, yeah. not quite visible or not quite audible. Like you wouldn't notice it until someone points it like out. Like Exactly. Yeah. 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 Reports citation ops. Um, and then you get, there's one other episode where uh, Geordie says to someone, oh, did you see the dolphins yet? Yeah. Which is quite a random thing to say and for someone who's not familiar with this idea that supposedly there are dolphins and whales on the Enterprise D even though we never see them Uh, but it's kind of a passing line you know maybe you kind of wouldn't notice it but at the same time it is you know and I was kind of thinking I was looking into this this weekend thinking um Sorry, I was sure. Like, what, why do they? Why would they have, ever have dolphins? Why would they? Well, there you go. And I always assumed it was because Next Gen came out of the success of Star Trek Four, yeah. right? Which was the film about the whales, and the whole plot of Star Trek Four hinged on the fact they didn't have whales. We needed whales, oh, otherwise. So, so, so it is be, an injury. So, so it is kind of an injury yeah. insofar as like then they start developing this new series and developing the, st- yeah. the ship for the new series, and they specifically design a part of the ship that's going to be filled with dolphins and whales. Yeah. And in the technical manual, they yeah. have, in the technical manual they have a weird um explanation for it it's not just that you see these little outlines of, of tiny little whales and dolphins and so on on the schematics um they explain the like, guidance and navigation research i took this from a, this an article online if you want to learn about cetacean ops it, I, I can't remember where it was but it's quite interesting um but it summarizes what it says in the technical manual it's conducted by a cetacean crew of 12 bottlenose dolphins and pacific bottlenose dolphins who's supervised by two whales yeah. um 
And according to Rick Sternbach, the idea was never shown on, st- on screen since the expense would have been prohibitive. But we did convince the writers to have Geordie ask a visiting official if they ever saw the dolphins. Now, I have to say, I think not only would the cost have been prohibitive, but the viewers of Star Trek The Next Generation would have thought, this is patently ridiculous. You know, why are there dolphins on the ship? Is one thing Picard having a goldfish in his ready room. But like whales and yeah. dolphins and so on, also, they were not really... Especially if they've got some sort of weird duty... Uh, uh, like a navigation duty like well exactly it's their I job mean, they're not just there as like, pets we're, we're, get, we're heading into a whole different what type happens, of sci-fi you know, what yeah. happens when, <laughs> when that saucer went down you know who knows but but the interesting thing how do you know it wasn't in the saucer like, section well exactly well I, no I assume they were I don't know I need to check I, I thought they were in the saucer section maybe they weren't I don't know yeah, maybe, maybe maybe somebody on Twitter somebody on Twitter please let us know where the dolphins were on the Enterprise but cetacean ops is one of those interesting things because I think it's something that obviously most casual viewers of Star Trek would not be aware of even though literally they may have heard those two references yeah. um, but it's something that some fans are fascinated with you know you have this idea of like Commander Flipper the, the kind yeah. of citation crew member and no. this kind of this whole it's, this, it's a bit like the slash fiction it's almost yeah. this whole other world of the next generation that we never see yeah. but that we can kind of imagine is going on and Star Trek Online I think had they didn't they they commissioned some designs uh, about you know what citation ops might have looked like and you know you can see these kind of artist renderings of this kind of depth of dolphins do the dolphins, dolphins have uniforms? well like, that's a good question I mean I, I, I don't know if that's they'll be ridiculous like <laughs> Dolphins with with next gen uniforms, and you know, I don't think you ever watched Sequest. There was a dolphin yeah, yeah, Sequest. Yeah, there was a Sequest. Yeah, 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 so it's kind of. You but know, then the thing is, hold on one second. You're talking about it being ridiculous, but you, but literally, we had an entire movie about whales, right? Like, yeah, so, but, like, they, but they were they actual whales. Well, I was yeah. going to say they weren't they didn't in space. Fly the they, were in space. they were in space. They were in space. They, they traveled through time. Yeah, but not on their own initiative. They didn't fly the ship. We weren't relying on them for navigation. No. No, we were just relying on them to talk to an alien space from and save the Earth. I take it back. <laughs> but it's that weird thing, isn't it? And, and But maybe that's partly because, as well, like I was saying, Star Trek Four. Is a mad, silly film. Like yeah. I love that film, but it is it is a very silly romp. Um, Star Trek: The Next Generation, although they had comic episodes and so on, is fairly straight laced as, yeah. like, as yeah. a series on the whole, which is why it feels so bizarre. The yeah. idea that secretly there's there's these whales that no one ever talks about, other than very you know brief passing reference. But I'm just kind of interested. You know, is it, you know, do you guys feel that this concept that there are whales on the Enterprise that we just never know about? Do you find that charming? Do you find that ridiculous? Do you, do you feel like that you just have to kind of <laughs> accept that that's not really... It, it sort of comes inside idea of headcanon or like soft canon or, or you yeah. know, whatever. Like, do you... Re, do you uh, at what level do you believe that there are whales on the Enterprise? You know? okay. Can, I, uh, yeah, uh, so, <laughs> can I just say, I'll, just, I'll, try, and keep, I'll try and keep this as brief as possible. Mm-hmm. I have a bugbear with things that take you out of the narrative world mm-hmm. that you're supposed to be viewing. So, um, and Lost is a prime example of this. In one of the first episodes there was a, a polar bear on the island and they never explained that polar bear again. Now, the thing is, if something's very strange, doesn't fit into the narrative, it's a sort of the real world example on the show. Okay, so Star Trek itself is obviously a fantasy, right? It's a fiction, we all know that. Um, what? <laughs> we're not, what do you mean? We're not heading towards that future. First contact, any day. Yeah. Um, and so, but... The way it's explained in the series is that although we, the idea of warp speed seems kind of crazy, it's explained with you know science fiction, technology, mm-hmm. technobabble. Um, it's everything is kind of explained as realistic in that world in that narrative. 
But if the Enterprise flying through space came across the giant killer rabbit from Monty Python and, you know, Picard was like, I can sing this rabbit to sleep. And he started singing. The whole narrative sort of realistic aspect of that world would break down and the audience would be like, what? Like you're taken out of the, out of the actual story. Mm-hmm. You're taken out of the world. And I've like lost is a prime example of that. Like you were suddenly taken off the island. You were like, what is a polar bear doing there? And then they never accurately explained it. Mm. So you ha- there has to be See, a very good explanation bear. for that. Yes, I, I agree. And I mean, I like I said, I stopped watching Lost. So I, I, yeah. I sort of I assumed feel navigating the polar bear dolphins would be explained. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, okay, I'm in the middle. because but, but, I, The polar bear maybe was explained at some point. No, right? they, they do explain it like they do were doing tasks later. On, and I'm sure somebody on Twitter will, like, will like, well. Like, okay, so the Ferengi are, are crazy. It's a crazy idea, right? Like as, as a species, they're very strange looking. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of inconceivable that they would exist. Um, we have no actual real life examples of Ferengi, but their society and their world and them as aliens are so well drawn in the Star Trek universe. They make perfect sense in the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. But if you took the Ferengi out of the Star Trek universe and you stuck the Ferengi in Game of Thrones, for instance, yeah. you'd be like... Or EastEnders. What? Or yeah. EastEnders. Exactly. <laughs> All right, I'd watch that. I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah. It has to make narrative sense in yeah. the world yes. it's in. Agree, and I'm yeah. sorry, navigating dolphins in Star Trek uniforms in a hidden part of the, the Enterprise does not make narrative sense. See, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle here because I actually find that stuff really charming, right? Okay. I, 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 I agree with you. I don't like, you know, you're watching something like Duet and you don't want to be like, take it out of the narrative. Like, yeah. you don't, right? You're watching, you know the rescue of best of both worlds that you don't want to be taking out of the narrative. However, the, you know, I think that they're in on the joke. The writers are, the, the writers and the producers are in on a lot of these jokes. They're mm-hmm. not going to show you the real reason they didn't show you the dolphins and the whales in the enterprise <laughs> D is not because they didn't have the budget. I'm sure yeah. they didn't have the budget, but they would never have shown you that for, for all the reasons that you, <laughs> that you said, that you said it, right. Even though there's a lot of really ridiculous things, particularly in the original series and in early TNG that are absolutely ridiculous. And they wouldn't show that to you now, but I actually think that that, the in jokes are really charming. So, like one of my favorite things in the world is when they t- on, on DS Nine, which I think is actually the king of, in terms of all. I mean, Discovery is probably going to surpass it, but like you know, the the kind of the eighties and nineties track, DS Nine is definitely the king of those kind of in jokes. And and you know, one of my favorite things in the world is when Garrick Horder like is drinking Earl Grey, and he's <laughs> like he's like I like to show Earl, you know, that Earl Grey uh, uh, a thing or two, Mister Earl Grey. So they do all these like really self-deprecating kind of like referencing other treks. But one of the things that I love is when they talk about like Captain Baudet mm-hmm. or, you know, Lieutenant Billick's Pran <laughs> and you never see them, but yeah, every single true. time they talk about them, they get more and more, like within the reality of Star Trek, they still get more and more. Yes. They're like, oh, in one episode, yeah. he's talking about this. And then all of a sudden he's got a transparent skull. Billick's Pran is like shedding and then having 12 kids. And yes. like, like, yeah, no, I love that. That's it's true. Like, and it's that kind of playfulness yeah. of, and it's absolutely like, and only the fans who are yeah. re- recognising this is the same person who keeps coming up are yeah. going to be aware of that. Yeah. I mean, another one that I quite like in Enterprise, uh, you know, Enterprise, I think, is probably one of the least playful of the Star Trek series. In some ways, it's quite stretched on the line. But I like the idea of this character of Chef who's never, yeah. you know, who's never seen. Yeah. And then finally, in the very final episode, not that there are many redeeming features of that episode, <laughs> but we do get, you, you know, this kind of jokey solution to the yeah. problem that suddenly Riker is chef and, yeah. you know, obviously that's not possible that Riker is really chef but at the same time I don't know it's quite nice it reminds me of in Frasier the character yeah. of um, yeah, Maris, Maris, Maris who, you never meet Frasier, who you never meet but because you never meet her because no actress could play the <laughs> yeah. character that's been described because she has such a kind of yeah. large and life 
uh, personality yeah. off screen. Yeah. No one could kind of match that. And in some ways, by having a character like that, you can really play with who this person is. You, you're sort of playing with the audience because you're kind of acknowledging, yeah, this is silly. Mm. This is not really realistic. Uh, but at the same time, you can kind of build them up and build them up into this really kind of um, over-the-top level. You get the same thing, weirdly, with Morn, who I think yeah. is another... Right. I mean, Morn is a fantastic character who is basically one in-joke. Yeah. First of all, because he's uh, an anagram of Norm, yeah. cheers. So he's like, the, his name is a joke and, and yeah. his entire existence within Deep Space Nine is a reference to another TV show. Yeah. But then also because of the thing, because of the fact, first of all, the fact he never speaks, yeah. uh, which is funny in itself. And then the fact that they, not only does he never speak, because obviously the guy was an extra and he wasn't yeah. paid to speak, yeah. you know, but um, that they make jokes about how he never shuts up. They yeah. make jokes about, you know, how talkative he is. So there's this what kind of weird joke. What a he is. Exactly. Like, you know. Yeah. And when you get to Who Mourns for Morn, which is kind of almost an in-joke about an in-joke, yeah. because the entire episode is effectively a joke about the fact that they have this character who is sort of sort of real on one level and sort of a kind of construct that the yeah. audience recognises and yeah. really a real person. Um, he's kind of, it, it gets bigger and bigger. So when they find out that mourners die, you get this kind of multiplication of implausible, ridiculous stories about him. So you find out that he used to spar with Worf. So suddenly this guy who was like, a, a you know, propping up the bar and, you know, quite sort of big and burly and, and, and slow and lazy looking was apparently this brilliant fighter. Then you find out Jadzia Dax had an unrequited crush on him yeah. and Warren wasn't interested in her. <laughs> you know, and it just sort of gets more and more and more ridiculous. But there's this kind of, you know, you know, it's kind of just, it's a game basically. It's sort of saying to the viewer, yeah, this character is not a real person. Mm. This character is kind of a joke. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can love them. We love Morn. You know, Morn is a great character. Um, so you can kind of, you know, you can sort of play with that. And then another in-joke, which actually I had never even realised until I put this post on the Babel conference, someone pointed out, in the episode Who Mourns mm. for Morn, the guy, when Morn has died, and yeah. then Quark has this idea, keep, you know, keep Morn's seat warm. The guy who moves forward to keep Morn's seat warm, who's a random Bajoran, is actually the same actor who plays Morn, just <laughs> yeah, without yeah, makeup yeah, and everything. Yeah. So he's still taking up the seat. So again, there's kind of like an in-joke within an in-joke about an in-joke. But see, like, here and we are talking kind of like, about this, right? And we, and we get, it's charming yeah. and it's fun. And so, like, I understand exactly what you're saying. I don't disagree <laughs> with you at all. I do think that there are moments when, like, when, when something can take you out of mm. the world and you're into it, and that is very jarring. Mm. But I also think that, like, actually, Who Mourns for Morn is that perfect example of mm. it being really charming and here, you know, obviously the audience can't, you know, the two people that listen to this or whatever yes. it is, like, uh, are... What are you saying about listening? Yeah. No, no, I'm sure it's, it's... I'm sorry, I meant two million. I meant two million. Um, are here we are like smiling about it and it is, and, and I do think that actually when it's done well like that yes. it's yeah. really charming and I think it's a wink to us like and who are here 20 years later talking about it yeah but like that that it's a wink to us to say you guys are in on it yeah yeah no absolutely I think that's true and I think more and always I mean some people don't like I, I always quite enjoyed the episode who wants more for oh I love that episode so oh. and I think DS9 does do these kind of episodes that kind of veer off in a sort of weird direction yeah. and they kind of handle it very well because they have the character comedy yeah. down so well in that show um, I mean another just to like really quickly is in, the, in Dogs of War when Quark literally verbatim yeah. does the Picard speech yes. but it's like it's absolutely amazing. it's one it's amazing but it's absolutely ridiculous right yeah. and that is a complete in joke because yeah. you you know if you're not watching the like if you if you haven't watched First Contact which I don't know why you're watching the DS9 at that point sure. if you haven't watched First Contact but like it is like you know also kind of poking fun 
And because they were the redheaded stepchild of Star mm-hmm. Trek, as Ira Burr always likes to point out, you know, they did make all like kind of these jabs at like. It's sort the, of poking fun at the pomposity of exactly, Next Gen as yeah. well, because I think that's part of it. Yeah. So you've got Quark, you know, Quark, who is this kind of Ferengi character, who's this kind of wretch. He's yeah. like the anti Picard. Exactly. Know? Picard is all about selflessness and self sacrifice yeah. and altruism and nobility and doing the right thing. And, you know, we don't need money anymore and all of this sort of thing. Quark is, you know, venal <laughs> and self serving yeah. and kind of, you know, out for a quick buck and everything. And yet he's literally quoting, yeah, exactly. His, you know, the line must be drawn here this far, no further. And which is also such an unquark thing. Yeah, to exactly. Say. exactly. And the way it's shot as well, I was watching yeah. that scene today, you know, it, it's shot in this very kind of dramatic way yeah. of him like at the center stage declaiming this speech. It's, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's every book. But he had it as well with um in, in the cards. They played that joke previously, again with First Contact. Yeah. I think First Contact yeah. is a very quotable film. Yeah. Uh they had that joke because <laughs> you've got this argument between Jake and Nog about um you know, Jake, Jake is saying, you know, will you buy this, uh, will you bid on this card for my dad? And Nog's like, well, why don't you bid on it? And he's like, well, you know, I don't have any money. And he basically just gives, he, he literally gives again for basically the card speech from first contact to Lily. But in this context, it's, it's sort of set up because Nog is like, well, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get your own money, but, basically. But so that's why Deep Space Nine was the king of this, right? Exactly. Like, and I think, like pricking the, the totally the, the, like the ridiculousness of like Star Trek and the fact that that TNG, which by the way, I mean, I love TNG, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, who doesn't? But like, it is TNG was so kind of in so many ways like so strict and so like Picard, yes, you know, exactly. and DS9 proper. is not and proper exactly. and noble and like, and that's the way it should be. And it was, and DS9 is anything but, but then you have to meet scenes like where Worf says to Jadzia and runabout, I don't remember what episode it is, but he's like, he's like, on the Enterprise, that was considered to be quite fun. And she's like, well, that must have been a one boring ship, you know, like, like <laughs> yeah. those, those yeah. things are amazing. And yes, with Next Generation, right. yeah. you find that um, very much it's like characters from other series go into next generation i'm thinking of like unification like mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. isn't there the episode where Leonard mccoy pays a visit to yeah. the in you the, know whereas in deep yeah. space nine they travel back to the original series don't they in that episode right. is it tri- trials and tribulations, tribulations yeah. yeah and there's lots of in jokes about like is, isn't this doesn't jazia say something funny about what she's wearing yeah, yeah. and yeah, like yeah. referencing that spock's so attractive which is kind of an in joke to the fact that half the women on the original mm-hmm. series were in love with spock and then, um, and then she married Spock's son. Yeah, she married well, Spock's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like yeah. a real world. Yeah, that's like a weird, like, like, I wonder if they said that at the wedding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a weird time travel, you like hit on your dad. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and then, and then there's sort of references to how the Klingons look different then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's all that sort yes. of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like Deep Space Nine isn't, afraid to kind of share itself more yeah. Deep Space Nine could handle it I think we could, and, and that's why I've always thought like the, the way exactly that line about the Klingons oh it's something we don't talk about yeah. that was the DS9 approach it's coy it's playful it's kind of like yeah you know we know what's really going on we'll make yeah. a joke about it and deflect it Whereas then you get an enterprise with a serious <laughs> effort to like really explain it all. And, yeah. and this kind of, you know, I suppose this was what, I mean, Brandon Braga used to complain about the continuity pornographers when yeah. he was writing Enterprise, this kind of obsession with continuity. Mm. But you do get in that that storyline in Enterprise. And then, of course, they've shot themselves in the foot because then you get to Discovery where they decide to change it all again. Yeah. And they're like, what are they going to do? And I know they're, you know, they're 
all this thing about hair and they, they cut their hair, they yeah. grow their hair, all this business. But, you know, basically we know they want them to look different. You know, yeah. they, want, they want to redefine yeah. look. They've done that with various other species along the way. You know, look, with things like themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. You know, it's, Easter it's eggs like, aren't always designed to explain things, are they? I mean, that's the thing. Sometimes Easter eggs or references are actually, like you said, charming in-jokes mm. or sort of weird, bizarre little ideas that pop up, like the number 47, just to intrigue the audience or to please the people making the show. Mm. And sometimes over explaining things for the sake of canon, mm. like you say, can lead it's to something not funny. fairly, it's not funny. fairly exactly. dry. You know, yeah. yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas Trials and Tribulations does it in a way that is funny. And it kind of, yeah, I suppose, I mean, it sort of vaguely gives an in-universe <laughs> non-explanation. At least, non, I suppose that's the thing, it acknowledges it. And it yeah. acknowledges the, the past and the history and makes a joke out of it rather than trying to kind of tie it all in and make yeah. it all fit perfectly and, and, you know, make perfect sense of it. So I like Enterprise. I'm never, like, going to, like, you know, sit there and, like, crap on Enterprise necessarily. <laughs> I enjoy Enterprise. It's not my favourite, but I enjoy it. Uh-huh. But that scene, this is the difference. That, that one scene in that one episode of Deep Space Nine has more charm, is infinitely more quotable. And I will go back to that. It like way, like, I mean, there doesn't even compare to three yeah. episodes where they literally brought back Brent Spiner, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. and like, and those are not bad episodes, but like, it, it it's infinitely forgettable. Yeah. In compared yeah. to that one little scene. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and I think it goes to show you the power of them kind of acknowledging to the audience that like, yeah, we get it. And it was because in the sixties they couldn't do this kind of makeup and this was a low budget show. And now this show, <laughs> we can't do all these things, but who cares? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is, I mean, a lot of these in jokes are, they are very much directed at addressing kind of real world issues that were oh. circulating around Star Trek and kind of acknowledging that. I mean, one of the other ones that I think is quite interesting is say in Star Trek five, you've got that line, not in front of the Klingons. Yeah. And there's this kind of, uh, tea, it's a tease basically isn't it because it's a and, and that line would not exist if it weren't for the slash fiction this yeah. kind of idea of Kirk and Spock as lovers and so on um, you know which obviously Star Trek is never going to make real because yeah. that's not real in the context of the kind of canonical Star Trek universe but they can tease it by yeah. having a line like that which is just sort of just slightly flirting with that idea yeah. um, and you get it again in Enterprise actually one, and, and look, look this is I'm really you know these are the redeeming features of these are the voyages which is not a great episode by any stretch <laughs> but and I don't know if this was in the script I don't know if it's deliberate or whatever but the way that um, episode is edited there's a moment where there was this whole sort of kerfuffle about whether Reed was going to be a gay character. And if yeah. you watch the Enterprise Blu-rays, you'll see, you know, the interesting conversations that went on around that that particular topic and the views that people had about it. But I, I love the fact that in that final episode of Enterprise, there's because they have those interviews where Riker is interviewing different people mm-hmm. and he asks, he's interviewing Reed, and then he asks the question, and were you attracted to Trip? And then it cuts and it turns out he's actually interviewing Hoshi, I think. Yeah. But it's like a very playful, it's just this kind of yeah. thing where for like a split second, it seems like he's implying that, mm. uh, you know, Reed is a gay character. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, this being Star Trek in the, you know, whatever it was, 2000s, they weren't going to go there. They didn't go there. Yeah. But they did see that tiny little... Uh, yeah, like wink to the audience. Yeah, we know that, you know, there were some people who thought this was going to be a gay character and there was a kind I think of, there's an outtake where it's there. a bit more explicit and I think oh, really? the actor sort of responds like I don't know, I could be wrong. <laughs> I think if you look up Enterprise outtakes, I think you will right. find an outtake from that very scene uh-huh. where like Jonathan Frakes actually says something like, you know, were you attracted to him or something? Right. And the and the and the other actor kind of 
basically squares the him or something. So I think, well, you know, YouTube outtakes. Is wow, okay. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to look out for that episode. And there, there's a story. <laughs> no, but there's a real story. We were yeah. living here. I was in London yeah. going to LSC at the time mm-hmm. and I couldn't get Enterprise in real time. So right. I should try to like download it, you yeah. know, however I could get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that episode was just not a bit, I couldn't find it anywhere. Right. Then um, I moved back to the US and it wasn't available on DVD. It wasn't on demand or mm-hmm. anything. And then by that point, all of the, like the backlash had, like for the episode was everywhere. Right. That, like, I mean, I have seen all, every episode of Star Trek. Yeah. Minus the animated series. Um, <laughs> uh, I've seen a few. Um, many, I mean, some of them literally dozens, if not hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And that is the one episode I've never served. I've never seen. Well, that oh. is interesting. I mean, it's a good choice. I'd say this is going to be one. So maybe we should watch it live and like, we can react. It's interesting that you mentioned the animated series, because the animated series is almost an in-joke within the Star Trek universe in itself, because yeah. it skirts this line of whether it's canon or not. Yeah. When we were at Destination Star Trek, I bought, uh, you, Clara was with me, I bought a triple for my son Leo, but I also bought a glomer. And a glomer is the, you, you won't know, that. Yeah. maybe you will if you've seen one or two episodes, the, a glomer is the animal that eats triples. Yeah, basically. yeah. Um, I did part know. of the appeal, I think, <laughs> for me of buying the glomer is like this is something that, does it exist within Star Trek or yeah. not? Because it's kind of semi-canonical. It's sort of yeah. slightly ambiguous. And they're selling this creature. And it's like, yes, it is kind of in Star Trek. It's in the animated series. But at the same time, did those stories, you know, did yeah. these things really, you know, in quote marks, yeah. did this really happen? And I think when you see um, things from the animated series being brought into the kind of live action series, yeah. and you got it, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in Discovery, one of the names of those captains that Saru yeah. brought up was Robert April, who, as far as I know, was only ever mentioned in the animated series. Is that right? No, I think there, there, there is something series? in the original series, because I remember... Hasn't been mentioned. Yeah, because in, there in the was a... There is, and he's supposed to look like Gene Roddenberry, and so there's a picture of Gene Roddenberry, at least in the Star Trek Encyclopedia, talking oh, about maybe. Michael Kuda. No, but that was in the Encyclopedia. I don't think... No, that I, think no, no I know, but that was... Really, I think the name is mentioned. So I think the name is April, that he's the first captain of the Enterprise. Okay. But we but can anyway, pretend, it's well, pretend it's like this is a reference. One way or another, anyway, yeah. anything that comes that essentially comes from the animated series and is then referenced in any way in later Star Trek is is almost an Easter egg in itself. Yeah. Because it's like saying, hey, you know, we saw this wacky cartoon and we're pretending that that was real as well. When, yeah. you know, patently it was yeah. a cartoon. Yeah. And it's that kind of weird, again, sort of skirting the line of, you know, what, what reality are we in right now? Yeah. You, you know, what what's real anyway anymore um well it's i was thinking about the show the other day and in this and in preparation for this because obviously they just announced like last month lower decks Mm. and that's going to be you know it has a two season at at minimum of a two season commitment on Mm -hmm. on cbs all access and it's going to be animated and it sounds like especially the people that are bringing in like it will have a slight kind of comedic yes like slant to it and who knows it'll be slapstick who knows what it's going to be like or who knows what it's going to look like mm. but then all of a sudden is it going to be canon right you know yeah. and does it matter like i actually don't ever think of the animated series as can i personally don't think of it as canon i am not like a uh you know an orthodox when it comes to canon mm-hmm. or anything like that but then all of a sudden you know star trek 09 which i adore i love star trek 09 right. like I, like it is it's to me, it's almost a perfect movie in many respects. And that, that can be the topic of another. And I hate Into the uh, into Darkness as much as I love right. 09. Okay. That's yeah. a whole other topic. But, I mean, I remember when they were making it yesteryear, that episode in the, in the animated mm-hmm. series, the one episode of the animated series that I think at least I think twice. 
yeah. was a huge influence in for like the yeah. Spock storyline. Yeah. So, okay, you can argue, yeah, it's not canon, but it played a huge influence in, you know, and in even the movie. design and so on. Yeah, in the yeah. design and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. See, I just think of everything as canon. I just <laughs> take it all and put it all together, except for the, the dolphins. Slash, the slash yeah. fiction. Okay, maybe <laughs> not the slash fiction, but like, because but, I, I spent a good yeah. portion of my childhood reading Star Trek books. Right. And the original novels of the original series yeah. are not considered canon. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. there's all these stories about Kirk and Spock doing all these non-sexual things. Um, <laughs> but fun things going around the universe and none of those are considered canon. So, and even like the post-Voyager novels aren't considered canon, but I read all of that sort of stuff and really enjoyed it. So, for me, it's... It, Canon isn't such an issue for me. It's, it's kind of a whole part and parcel, the fact that it's science fiction. You can just throw everything in it together. Yeah. Unless it's set in a real-world context, like something like the X-Files, in which I kind of get a little bit freaked out when things start going yeah. crazy. But, like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Star Trek's such a big franchise. There's so much, and there's yeah. so many different versions, so many different series, and there's also alternate universes and all that sort of thing. But I think the more, the merrier. Yeah. I, I guess if you have different types of different formats, so something's animated and something's... Like live action, it's hard for people to reconcile it in their heads, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. But one thing that I was kind of interested in about this subject is, and I mean, you know, we're not going to get through every, I mean, we, we've made lists of like hundreds of in jokes and Easter eggs and so on. We're not going to get through all of them. I might just, I, I'm just going to whiz through a few of my favorite ones we haven't talked about briefly. One of the ones I loved was, uh, Tasha Yar's Wave Goodbye. I mean, that's one that I only realised when the TNG Blu-rays, I think, came out. People started pointing out that Denise Crosby actually waves goodbye to the show, not in her final episode, but in her final scene that was filmed. It's yeah. in the background. You can yeah. see her waving goodbye. You know, I, I love that the kind of references. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one noticed. Yeah. I know, but I love it. I think that's, for me, that's quite charming. That's quite nice. Yeah. Um, I love the episode Tinker Tenor Doctor Spy, which is an episode that is just infused with references to previous Star mm. Trek. You know, you, you start off with a scene which is kind Kind of a rip off of Sarek, where yeah. Tuvok is weeping at the at the opera. You've got you you know um, the Doctor has to kind of basically become Spock in the Wrath of Khan. He thinks yeah. and go into the Walker. You've got this kind of playful idea that's yeah. kind of constantly playing with with Star Trek's own history. You've got you know I mean you talked about two thousand nine. 2009 has that nice joke about Admiral Archer's Beagle. Uh, By the time you get to Beyond, there's kind of such a web of references to previous Star Trek. It is this kind of anniversary film, uh, you know, because it was for the 50th. And we saw the same thing with Skyfall, uh, which you and I were talking about at Destination Star Trek, uh, Carlos, about, you know, this idea of kind of bringing in all these kind of references, bringing in all these little nuggets, all these Easter eggs and so on. But one of the interesting things I thought that... um, Clara asked when we were preparing for this episode was uh, sort of along the lines of, um, you know, when does an Easter egg become more than an Easter egg? You know, when does it become more than that? And a lot of these things that we talked about, they are quite flippant. They are quite kind of, uh, they're little cheesy jokes. They're little kind of in-jokes. They're little asides almost to the audience. Yeah. The example for me that works, I think you could argue, is in a sense uh, an Easter egg, but a rather magnificent sort of Fabergé Easter egg is the episode Lethe. And in Discovery, that was the episode that really Mm -hmm. made me take that show seriously. And it's an interesting one because, you know, it is kind of going back and and sort of delving into this literally 50-year-old mystery that's been hanging around in Star Trek and filling in a little bit of continuity in this Mm -hmm. way. And it is absolutely, you you know, on one level, it has all of that kind of Easter egg equality. You know, it's kind of going into something quite minute and quite small and kind of explaining it, giving a little bit of extra context, giving a little bit of extra uh, sort of, a little bit of extra information to put in that moment. And it's, and, it, you know, I thought it was wonderful. It's like, a, it's a real treat for the fans. I mean, they often talk about, 
these are the voyages which you know you fortunately haven't seen yeah. carlos was intended allegedly as a love letter yeah, to the fans yeah. the, lo- the fans rejected it you yeah. know they, they walked they go <laughs> exactly return to sender yeah but i mean i think lethe is one of those things where it's it's quite bold it does something that i certainly wasn't expecting going to discovery mm. to get an explanation for you know what was going on with with Sarek and spock and yeah. so on but it does it in such an effective successful yeah sort of jaw-dropping way. I mean, I, you know, I've talked about this before. I literally gasped when I watched that episode because yeah. I, I was just like, that is it's mind-boggling. ballsy too. You know, exactly, really ballsy. But it is on one level for the fans. That, that is like fan service of the most, you know, that's, I'm mixing my metaphors, but that's like fan silver service. That's yeah. not just like cheap, cheap fan service. Yeah. Because I think a lot of, when we talk about fan service, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they love In a Mirror Darkly. Mm. I do not love In a Mirror Darkly personally. I think that's fan service of a slightly junk food kind of variety. Right. But I think Lethe is just... Um, the Bloomin' you know, Bob. Like, has some Bloomin' Bob. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the whole cuisine of, yeah. you know, a fan service. Um, I love that episode, by the yeah. way. It's my favorite by far. Literally my, my favorite episode of Discovery to date. It mm. is, I think, that episode is an absolute kind of masterpiece in many respects because I think one it's really ballsy it's like mm-hmm. episode six of discovery if I'm not mistaken it's it, because they play not just with like Star Trek lore like they play with Spock like yeah. like early but not only do they do it they did it at, in my opinion and I would argue they do it perfectly yeah. like it complicates the character of Sarek yeah. it makes the character of Michael all of a sudden infinitely more interesting as in relationship to both Sarek and, and, and Spock and I just think that they I mean that's a Grand Slam episode for me mm. it and is it's gr- believable I think that's it's totally believable. it feels totally believable it makes total psychological mm. sense so it's not like I mean a lot of these easter eggs they're kind of they're demanding that you mm. suspend your disbelief in yeah. a sense like they're like something like Morn is presenting something that's not believable yeah. you know the idea that he's fighting with war from the Hollow Suites yeah. or whatever but yeah what Lethe manages to do is kind of almost play the same game but do it in a way that is totally credible yeah. and totally believable. And you're like, oh my God, you know, how did we not see this for 50 years? Yeah. This, this makes so much sense. But know? then, but it compli- what, what's amazing about that is that it, you know, Sarek, you know, obviously turns one child away in favor of another child. Yeah. And that's the child that he favors then, you know, turn, turns his back on him. And it's just, it's just like an amazing, like family fuck up at like uh, on such like a massive scale. And it's led to memes. You know, if you go on the internet, there's that picture of uh, Sarah like, looking depressed, wearing a t-shirt saying, I give up at a party. <laughs> and it, you know, it's like, you know, one of my, ch- two of my children joined Starfleet and one of my child, one of my children, you know, joined a cult. Yeah. yeah I yeah. give up. Like yeah, none of yeah. them went to the science academy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Vulcan science know, academy. Was he wasn't. Was he ever in the science academy? I don't know. I mean, like he was a no, no but, it's, but a Vulcan can dream. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's amazing? I mean, this is a whole lot of topics, but I don't understand. You know, we talk about continuity and 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 people who are obsessed with continuity. Yeah, like people are like, well, you know, we didn't know. How can we have Michael be like part of the family? And we're like. Yeah, but they're a weird family. They're a weird family. Cyborg. I mean, like you didn't like they even address it in the movie. They're like, I didn't know you had a brother. I know everything about you. You know, and you're like, 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 like. Well, weirdly, you know, Gene Roddenberry claims that Star Trek V was non-canonical. That it was, you know, it was basically like the the anime series that never really happened. There was that kind of idea, like, is Cyborg? You know, is Cyborg real? Yeah, but we don't have everything explained for us about every Mm -hmm. character in Star Trek because. 
that's not how television entertainment works. You know, I mean, the viewer doesn't want huge amounts of exposition. We don't Mm. want Sarah to stand there and deliver a long family history in verbal form, you know? So it's not that we don't necessarily, that Michael never existed. It's just Spock that Spock never mentioned her while we were watching. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's not. It's not impossible that he wouldn't have talked about her in some other context. Like, well, you see, I, I yeah. did, yes, when, like, I, I did feel. I have to say, when they announced Discovery and they announced that she was going to be Spock's foster sister or whatever, I was a bit like, "Come on, you know." Mm. Like, because there is there is this sort of question, not just what's possible, but what's sort of plausible. And yeah. Kind of play. You know, there is a kind of contract between the writers and the producers and the yeah. audience, and you kind of buy into. And I suppose what's charming about these Easter eggs is they slightly. There's a kind of tension there because they they are like you know toying with the boundary between what's real and what's yeah. fiction, if you yeah. know what I mean, by kind of acknowledging these these you know moments where there's it's kind of porous that yeah. barrier. You know something can kind of seep through from the real world into yeah. the fictional world. And so on. I just wanted to ask Carlos before we go. I mean, you loved Lethe. Uh, you loved uh, the 2009 movie. Star Trek Into Darkness, uh-huh. arguably, is, you know, replete with Easter eggs for the like rock 100%. Of <laughs> you know? But they're like shitty Easter eggs. Yeah. Like, like, oh. like, like I would talk about being charming. I think they've gone, those, they those Easter eggs have gone, yeah, exactly. They've gone yeah. bad. They've been yeah. let out, like, in the garden. They've been in the garden for, like, months. Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. Dif- the difference with Into Darkness is, like, or with Lethe, like, Lethe, like, they're not claiming the Spock is a different person, mm-hmm. you know, or a different character. They're just adding more like clarification or more characters to the Spock like yes. story arc, right? Whereas with Into Darkness, they fundamentally changed the characters, which mm-hmm. is why it all had to become a Kelvin timeline and a completely different, you know, I guess an alternate universe or something. But like they changed the characters. They made Kirk do an action. Like at the very end, they say, like, Kirk is like, this is what you would have done. And Spock is like, this is what I, you know, this is what you would have done. Mm-hmm. So they're like, they're like, they're like, they're like swapping roles. Of, I think it's also, do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's actually changing who the person is after 50 years of that character being like that. You see, I you think know? it's also though this kind of idea of like, how seriously do you take it? And a lot of these Easter eggs that we talked about, they're kind of flippant, they're kind yeah. of cheap jokes. And you accept the cheap joke if it's funny and if it's in the context of something that is fun and entertaining. Something like Lethe, I think, is unusual because it's not a cheap joke at all. It's actually taking, it's yeah. like taking this really seriously and you're impressed by it and you kind yeah. of like, are like, yeah, okay, I buy yeah. that, that's fine. I think Into Darkness fails on that level because it's kind of, it's taking something which is quite serious. Mm. You know, the Wrath of Khan is, is a yeah. moment, like in all of Star Trek, kind of high watermark of yeah. drama. Yeah. And it's kind of turning it into, it's almost turning it into a meme. It's almost, it's saying like, we can yeah. borrow this, we can take yeah. this, we can, you know, rip this yeah. apart and do something with it and you'll, you'll love it because it's like this other thing you yeah. love. It's like, and it's just like, don't you get it? It's, like it's, like, it's exactly that kind of JJ, for me, it's it's the kind of worst example of that kind of JJ Abrams, like magpie-like mentality mm-hmm. of like, I'm going to borrow this and I'm going to take this and I'm going to kind of cobble it all together. And you're just like, that's, you do not understand why it works the, in the first place. It's like the, the idea in an alternate universe, like I might be sitting on that side of the table and you might be sitting on this side of the mm-hmm. table. Um, but okay, so maybe we're sitting on different sides of the table, but we wouldn't be each other. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't yeah. be, I wouldn't be the Clara version of Duncan and Duncan would be the... You know, the, the, that the would be an awesome episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're allowed to do that one. Yeah, like, yeah, you see we'll what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. you don't fundamentally change who you are. And the sacrifice in the Wrath of Khan was fundamentally um, a decision or a choice that was very much determined by Spock's personality. Yes. It's not, it's not like you suddenly, you know, you know, I mean, yeah. do something like we might have this podcast in a different location in a different timeline, but, um, you know, we wouldn't be, 
I don't know, standing on our heads or something. Or make, know, this is a bad like, example. But you see what I'm saying? Like, you wouldn't make completely maybe. different choices. But like, we wouldn't be talking about some inferior sci-fi series. It's true. That, that very interchangeability of those characters, I suppose, suggests something about how uh, non-grounded that approach to storytelling is somehow, maybe. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? This idea that, yeah, okay, Kirk can do the Spock thing and Spock can do the Kirk mm-hmm. thing and it's kind of like... It was just cheap and badly it's done. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's the problem with it. <laughs> Like, 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 yeah, yeah. The, the thing is yeah. that, what, so again, my love for 09 knows no uh-huh. bounds, right? But what I, what, what drives me crazy about Into Darkness is that they earned, at least in my opinion, with 09, the ability to play around in that world. And they not only earned it, and, but they could do anything because now it's like in yesterday's Enterprise. It, it's what, it's like if we would have like followed that storyline. This is now an alternate, it, it had its origins in the prime universe, which is amazing. But now it's its own new thing and everything's up in the air, mm-hmm. right? But my, my, my issue is that they, they could have, they could have, they had the entire playground to play in mm-hmm. and they choose to remake Wrath of Khan poorly. And that to me is that like, like it, it's just unforgivable. Like I don't understand why they did it. Because it breaks that contract, I think, between the, the writers and the viewers. Yeah. Of like, and that's, you know, when we talk about fan service, I suppose that is, that is part of it. And, you know, I mentioned Brandon Braga saying, you know, about these fans who are continuity pornographers yeah. and they're like, they're down, they're breathing down my neck. And yeah. I, can't, I can't write because yeah. these fans are telling me what they want and what they don't want and so on. And obviously there is always that kind of slightly complex relationship between the writers who yeah. are trying to do new things or do interesting things and the yeah. fans who maybe want them to do certain yeah. things that aren't, yeah. you know, they may not be on the same page. But I suppose maybe where these Easter eggs can work is that they are a, they, they are a sort of gift, I suppose, on yeah. one level. And they're an expression of trust and they're an expression of kind of uh, that kind of easygoing, I don't know, affection, whether it's affection for the show itself or affection between the writers and the fans or whatever but it's interesting that Carlos you pointed out that Deep Space Nine is the show that does it the best and in some ways of course Deep Space Nine was the show that wasn't always loved by the fans yeah. you know what I mean that was the, it was the middle child but maybe they felt that like the people who got it yeah. got it you yeah. know what I mean and they didn't really care hmm. uh, whether the people who only like next gen came yeah. on board or whatever hence you do get that kind of you know slight prodding now and then <laughs> but, you know but, kind of next gen pomposity or whatever but this is what I'm going to say is not to derail this conversation or, but like definitely a topic for another podcast. But I just finished reading um, A View from the Bridge, mm-hmm. which is Nicholas Meyer's kind of memoirs about Hollywood. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if you guys have read it. I could not recommend it enough. It was phenomenal, right? Like really, even if you would love it, if you didn't even like Star Trek, because yeah. it's just such an amazing view into filmmaking in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. And what he made arguably probably one the best Star Trek movie ever made, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, and then the three best by far um, original series movies. Mm. And he he did it and he talks about it, how he just looked at Star Trek and was like, I don't care what came before me. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything that I want. Mm-hmm. So I think Star Trek and sometimes works best when there is that tension of like that Gene Roddenberry is like, oh we're like this. And then someone else it takes like a Harvey Bennett and a and, a, and Nicholas Meyer and say, yeah, I love all, you know, all your jokes and like what you created before, mm-hmm. but actually I'm going to do exactly what I want. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I received Ben. Exactly. He loved exactly. the series, but wanted to do his own thing it, and, that, you know, didn't want to do more next year. And Star Trek, I think works best yeah. when like that, that, there is a tension between someone's artistic vision mm-hmm. and it's trying to pull away from ironically from what Gene Roddenberry's original vision. Well, it's about exploring new worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So 
you can't explore new worlds if you just sort of keep repeating the same plot over and over and over again. And so Star Trek has to be different from one series to the next mm. because like that's what the whole series is about. I mean, apart mm. from a utopian vision of the future, it is about going out and finding new things and discovering new things yeah. and new concepts. So that has to happen with new series. And so that's why I'm sometimes surprised when there's like a section of fans who were like, you know, this is not real Star Trek. I'm like, I don't know how you can say that when every that, series is different. You, get that you know, you just don't watch it. Like, the, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, I feel like with Discovery, part of the function because Discovery did have quite a lot of Easter eggs yeah. going yeah. back to previous Star Trek in there, and I think a lot of them were partly a way of sort of staking a claim. Yeah. Almost, they were saying this is the same universe. Yeah. And also because there was this thing of like, who are these people? These guys haven't written Star Trek before. These yeah. aren't the real Star Trek writers. You know, they don't know Star Trek. Yeah. They were partly a way of kind of like, yeah, we you do. know, flashing your Star Trek ID and saying, yeah, you know, we, we've seen all this. We know what we're talking about. And, you know, arguably maybe with Beyond as well. I mean, aside from the 50th thing, having Simon Pegg on board, who was a big Star Trek fan originally, yeah. which J.J. Abrams certainly was not. Yeah. You know, maybe that was a way of kind of saying, hi, you know, yeah, I get it. I can, I can throw in but then your jokes. Once you've done prove my credentials almost. And once you've done the Easter eggs and the references back, then I think, you know, to establish that you are in the Weezane universe and it is Star Trek and they are fans then you can go and do something completely amazing and new. And I yeah. wonder if the second series of Discovery is going to be like that. Or will completely it just be, out you know... Str- I'm hoping it's going to be completely yeah. different. Yeah. Well, before we go, Carlos, let me ask you how, where our listeners can find you online if they want to chat to you more about Star Trek and make their defence of Star Trek Into Darkness. and, and uh, Bring it! Bring it! <laughs> uh, I, I'm really active on Twitter, which is how, kind of how we met. And... Uh, um, so it's at Double Mac uh, with two C's at the end because uh, I really, aside from Star Trek, my other great love is coffee. And so I drink a lot of Double Macchiatos. Oh, okay. And that's where Double Mac comes from. Uh, I'm uh, much more Janeway than Picard when it comes to my <laughs> drinks of choice. I have to have you on for another for a debate about the, the merits of, you know, Janeway's coffee versus Picard's Earl Grey tea. There's no, there's no question. <laughs> we, we just did the podcast right now. Like, the coffee's infinitely better. Podcast over. Fair enough. Well, apparently Patrick Stewart even hates Earl Grey tea. Oh, so. uh, well. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, it's been great having you on the show. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank you for coming. Well, it's been fun talking about Easter eggs and in-jokes and uh, the numerous iterations of the number 47 in the Star Trek universe. But that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. Robert the Bruce isn't sort of one of these stories that we kind of get told a lot really in school. And it's kind of funny that you're talking about that you've just read this kind of book about, you know, my first king as it essentially were. Whereas at school, I spent a year learning about American history and kind of the rise to American Civil War and Civil War over. Like, there there never is much kind of conversation about kind of Scottish history right, with certain things like the Jacobites and perhaps, you know, the classic world wars, for example. So, like, it's really interesting to, to almost have this discussion. Melodic tricks. I think it's it's notes and the, the combinations that they use. So they will use dissonance, so notes that don't really clap that that clash and don't really go against each other. And they'll use minor and they'll use minor chords. They'll use uh, diminished chords because those sound you know the saddest, the most frightening. You know they'll use those. Some, maybe maybe an augmented chord here and there. Literary tricks. Data should have been XO half a decade ago. 
He should have been first officer on this ship. I have cost him years in his career because I didn't get out of his way because I was too comfortable because I didn't want to shake up my life because I was scared. He says, well, I'm done being scared. I'm done being comfortable. I'm taking command of the Titan. That's the moment Riker says, I got to wake up. My life could end tomorrow. I need to do more. I need to be more. Warp five. Okay, so Frankenstein kills a couple people, mm-hmm. right? Kills an old man, kills an old woman, scares a bunch of people, goes on the run, scares some girl guides, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some Girl Scout guides, yep. Girl Scout guides, mm-hmm. takes her cookies. <laughs> yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.